and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. From the prophet Jeremiah, the 58th chapter, verse 1. Shout out! Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet, day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They want God on their side. They ask, why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help. And God will say, here I am. And from Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verse number 20. Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of God for us. The beloved people of God, together we say thank you, thanks be to God. 
So today, on this day, I want to ask a big question. There are so many big questions that we could ask on a day like today. Questions like, what is the best flavor of donut? It's a big question, right? We could ask, is there a right and a wrong way to load the dishwasher? Because you know the answer, but we're going to start arguing if we get into it. Or we could ask, is every Taylor Swift song really a version of the same thing over and over again? People say it's true, but I'm not so sure. But those are not the questions that we are going to ask on this day. I want to ask something far less controversial. I want to ask, is the way of Jesus compatible with the capitalist economy? That's the kind of question that is so large so big that we don't even ask it much of the time. We don't even bother. It sits there among us like, well, like an elephant in the room. Occasionally we glance at it and it glowers back at us and then we turn away and hope someone else will figure out what to do with it. But for the next 15 minutes, I want to hold this question in front of us. We here in the church should not be afraid of big and complicated questions. Every single week we come here and ask, is God real? At the very least, we should be able to ask, is the economic system that defines our material reality compatible with the will of God? So, are you with me? All right, let's do it. Where do we begin? All right, let's briefly define some terms this morning. Economics is from the Greek word oikos. It means household. Economics is how we get the material stuff of daily household life, like donuts and dishwashers and Taylor Swift albums playing on these remarkably inventive devices that have been created and sourced from parts all over the world. In capitalism, capital is privately held, right? It's held by individuals and sometimes by corporations. In capitalism, our work is specialized. We don't make donuts and dishwashers. We make one or the other, and then we bring them into the marketplace and trade them in this thing called the free market. Capitalism is decentralized, right? Part of its genius is that it allows us to act on our own. Lots of people acting all over the place and still somehow able to coordinate our actions together. Markets in capitalism are considered free because we can engage in them freely, freely buying and selling. But governments still play a huge role in capitalism. They uh, set the playing field. They set the rules of the game. Governments determine how money works. They determine how banks function, make sure the banks are healthy, and governments, of course, provide a police force to protect private capital. Governments also step in, we hope, when markets don't provide or won't provide the things that we consider public goods like water and roads and all number of other kinds of things. In a nutshell, that is capitalism. And capitalism is awesome. It's awesome. 
No economic system that the world has ever seen releases the productive capacities of us as human beings like capitalism. Now, some of you are going to start thinking, I have a wad of bills from the American Enterprise Institute tucked in my pocket right about now. I do not. The motive to make profit inspires people to ingenuity and hard work. Capitalism is dynamic. It's responsive to human needs and human wants. And as a force for eradicating the scourge of poverty on the face of this earth, no ideology in the history of the world has been more effective than capitalism. I mean, what's not to like, right? What's not to like? Why even raise questions about capitalism in a church on this lovely winter Sunday? Well, we raise questions today because of a certain guy. Yeah, that one, the guy in the middle. It's his fault. Blame it on him. Today's MLK Sunday, when we remember the legacy of Dr. King, his ministry and his social witness, and all those who walked arm in arm with King. Dr. King asked lots of questions about our life together, and a lot of them were about capitalism. No question he asked about capitalism was better or more pointed than why are there 40 million poor people in America? That's a good question. In the very year that Dr. King moved from Alabama back to Georgia to take over at Ebenezer along with his father in 1959, the national poverty rate was 22.4%. That's high. In Alabama and Georgia, it was somewhere between 30 and 50% in that same year. Dr. King asked that question then, but it's still not a bad question, is it? It's a question that hasn't gone out of date. Last year, according to the census, 37 million, 37 million of our neighbors made less than the equivalent of $26,000 for a family of four in the course of a year. King wanted to know why this deified economic system is fine, seemingly fine, with many of us remaining poor. If the point of an economy is to distribute household material goods, the goods that people need to survive, why do we abide by a system that seems to allow so many of us to go without basic needs? When you ask questions about poverty, King said, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. We celebrate Dr. King's legacy. We celebrate him for demanding that our nation's laws treat every one of us the same, no matter the color of our skin. But Dr. King knew that law in America is not just about civil rights. American law is also designed to protect property rights. In America, laws were designed to protect the owners of capital. And guess who got to make the laws in America? The owners of that same capital. To achieve real justice, King knew that you had to change the laws, but you also had to challenge the legitimacy of those who were holding 
the Capitol. The founders of our nation drew heavily in their documenting our laws, our constitution, on the writings of the Englishman John Locke. And I know a lot of you have been reading a lot of John Locke recently, so you'll be familiar with his second treatise of government in the 1680s. Locke brilliantly stated that every person, every person owns the labor that comes from their own bodies. Foundation of so much of the, the, the way our laws are drawn up. We own the labor that comes from our own bodies. What a cool idea. Imagine if you took it seriously. For 380 years, white people spent that time looting the property of black people. We built wealth. We built institutions to perpetuate wealth. We wrote laws and we wrote tax codes that protect and increase our wealth. We prevented laws from being passed that would redistribute even ill-gotten wealth. And we went ahead and wrote zoning codes, too, to make sure that those of us who are wealthy get to live with other folk who are also wealthy. And if you happen to be poor in America, well, come on, it's a free market. Get to work. King knew that in America, you could get a seat on the bus and you could get to drink from the same water fountain, and you could even get the right to vote for your own elected officials, but he knew that if you didn't start poking around in the economic system, there would never be justice. Now, King never fully articulated his economic philosophy. He was probably somewhere between a social democrat and a democratic socialist, although I couldn't tell you the difference between the two. He never articulated that philosophy because it would have been politically inexpedient to do so. But his approach to economics was essentially Christian. The U.S. Constitution never guarantees us a right to a basic standard of living, but Dr. King read the Bible, and he thought that the Bible and God do guarantee that right. Justice. Doing right by each other. The economic well-being of those who are poor, those are the primary biblical economic principles. We read Isaiah this morning, the prophets rail against exploitation by those who are rich. Go back to the Hebrew scriptures. Ancient Israel wrote rules for its community life that require people to forgive debts every couple years. They require that the edges of the fields go unmown so that those who are poor have something to eat. They require that those who are on the economic margins, the widows and the orphans, be taken care of. When God shows up, when God appears to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, why does God appear in that moment? Because God hears the cries of God's people as they are being economically exploited. God comes to Moses to deliver us into a land flowing with milk and honey. The Exodus is a story about God bringing economic liberation. 
And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus shows up and starts teaching and preaching. And the very first sermon he gives at the synagogue in Nazareth, he goes and he opens the scroll and he opens to the prophet Isaiah. His very first words are, hey, I've got good news if you're poor. The good news is not when you die, you go to heaven, although that is true also. The good news is that if you are poor, God sees you and hears you and loves you. And in the community of followers of Jesus, God is creating a model for the world in which those who have been hurt and those who are hungry and those who are homeless are brought in from the outside to the inside, from the margin into the middle of the community. The good news of life in Jesus that he shows us is a new life. We leave behind our sins, including the sins of economic injustice and the sin of letting each other be hungry. The Bible shows us over and over people who love God. And because we love God, we criticize And we transform the economic systems that make some of us rich and leave others poor. The Bible says that we as a Christian community are to model alternative economic arrangements in which resources are shared. So what are we to do as a church? I have to believe that a part of our role as a community of followers of Jesus is to criticize a system that provides an overwhelming stream of clients for a free refrigerator. We have to name poverty for what it is. It is a man-made evil. It's not natural. It's not inevitable. It is a choice that we make, and it's a bad choice. We have to see in this place capitalism for what it is. It is a powerful and a dynamic and sometimes even a beautiful economic system, but it is one that is easily perverted and easily corrupted. Capital keeps trying to extract as much value from workers as it can and give as little back in return as possible. That's not right. In that kind of system, followers of Jesus have an obligation to be on the side of those who are working for a living. That means we ought to insist on living wages and good benefits for everybody. We ought to be stepping in to protect the rights of immigrant workers, especially here in Georgia, some of the most vulnerable among us. And we ought to be giving support to those who are trying to organize unions to seek the power to negotiate for their own collective well-being. In the church... In the world today, with capitalism as it is, we have to continue to advocate for a social safety net. There are some goods the market will not and cannot provide. There is no reason for anyone in our community to be homeless or hungry. The market stinks at providing housing. You know this, right? It's terrible. 
Now the government, I'll give the government some credit, we put a lot of money into housing. Millions and millions of dollars every year we put into housing. You know who the largest recipient of housing benefits by the government is? Raise your hand if you have a mortgage. That's who our government helps with housing. The market is terrible at providing things like health care, especially when there's a profit motive involved. Any of you who read articles by Ariel Hart will know that this is true. The closure of the Atlanta Medical Center is a prime example of putting profits in health care over people. Every one of us should be able to get up and go to a doctor when we are sick. And I think, for what it's worth, that we ought to be advocating for a guaranteed income for every citizen in this country, a guaranteed basic income so that everyone has money in their pockets. If you and I, if you and I who believe that God's will for our world is economic justice, we have to do what King is doing in this picture, which is join arm in arm with people of faith of all kinds and with people who share our values in our communities and fight for these things and organize to achieve them in the world because they will not willingly be given. Capitalism is beautifully decentralized. It's marvelously inventive. But there is something about this system. If it were a person, you would say, wow, that person has some marvelous qualities, but ew. It seems to distort our imaginations about what it is to be a healthy human being in the world. Walter Rauschenbusch, the great social gospel preacher at the beginning of the 20th century, said it so well. He said, capitalism has overdeveloped the selfish instincts in all of us and left the capacity of devotion to larger ends shrunken and atrophied. This system wants us to be selfish. It wants us to love stuff. It manipulates our desires. It asks us to justify making profit over the well-being of people. It never seems to take full responsibility for the harm it does. It tries to externalize the costs. It tries to say, capitalism tries to say again and again that our highest goal is self-interest, that our world works best when it's everyone for themselves. That is just not the world that God gave us. And it's not the image of human life and human community that we find in Jesus Christ. In this sacrament of baptism that we reminded of again last week, in that sacrament in the church, we discover that we are beloveds of God, whether we produce profit or not. 
when we gather at this table. We are practicing a model of economic relationships. We are practicing a community of abundance and generosity and deep love for each other. We belong to the body of Christ. Our value as human creatures is infinite, no matter our productivity. In God's world, our relationships with the earth itself and certainly with each other are to be defined by love and compassion for each other and and giving each other our rightful dignity and encouraging and nurturing justice among us. That's what we see in Jesus. Jesus never looked at someone else and counted the cost of loving that person and said, nah, it's too much. In the letter to the Ephesians, in the second chapter, there is this wonderful passage about our unity in Christ. The writer says, toward the end of that passage, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer atomized units separate from each other. You are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are members of God's household. In our economic life, in all of life, may we love each other so much. Let the church say, amen.